I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4, you'll need a Bible to follow along. So we have some for you. These guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, get their attention. They'll get that Bible to you. And it's marked for you at Philippians 4. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. The human brain is by far more amazing than any computer that's ever been designed or any that ever will be. The brain has 12 to 14 billion cells, each of which sends out thousands of thread-like connections up to 10,000 neighboring cells. So these 12 to 14 billion brain cells times 10,000 connectors make our brains an incredible computer. The brain's activity has been compared to a thousand switchboards, each of those thousand big enough to serve New York City, all of them running at full speed as they receive questions and orders. There is more electronic equivalent in one human brain than in all the radio and television stations in the entire world put together. But the brain is more than just a complex and incredible machine. The human brain is not just the gray matter that's housed in our craniums. That's only the material component of what the Bible refers to as actually the mind. And the mind is more than the brain. It has a physical and a spiritual component, a material and an immaterial. So that the thoughts the mind generates can be good or bad, they can be moral or immoral, godly or sinful. And so the Bible can say things like the sinful mind is hostile to God. Now, a mere machine, of course, can't be godly or sinful, but the mind can be sinful because it's more than a machine. And chapter two of Philippians says it can be godly. We saw several weeks ago That back in chapter 2 and verse 5, we can have a mindset like that of Jesus. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He went back to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And he quoted a portion from there in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. But Jesus added something. He quoted, but then he adds this last phrase that I have highlighted for you. Love the Lord your God also with all your mind. Now, Jesus here is quoting what's called the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God from Deuteronomy 6. But loving God with all your mind is his addition to that. Of this, Christian philosopher and theologian Cornelius Plantiga asked, What if the four-year-old prayed outright? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my mind to keep. That would get our attention and it would be designed to do so. And it's what our Lord wants and demands is that he have possession of our minds. The mind can love God or the mind can defy God. We were made friends to think God's thoughts after him as his image bearers. God has given us the ability to receive and communicate truth and to correlate truths together. What all of this means is our thoughts, the activity of our minds is sacred 
And what goes into the mind then is to be guarded carefully. And that's why the wisdom of Proverbs tells us, above all else, guard your heart. That is the control center of our thoughts. For everything you do flows from it. Proverbs says as well, as a man thinks, so is he. The way we think determines how we relate, how we relate both to God and to other people. If we're to relate to God properly, if we're to love him in the way we think, then that's something we're going to have to determine to do each of us every day. And if we have unity with one another, we must think about them and think about God and think about ourselves properly, accurately. So as we continue our series in the book of Philippians, we're going to consider a portion of this last chapter, of chapter 4, that focuses on how we deploy the gift of thinking that God has given us, deploying it for his good purposes. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Father, here we are, stilled before you with your word open before us. This time, Lord, is designed for us to hear from you, to consider with the minds that you have given us, to train our thoughts upon what you have said. And so, Lord, help us to do that. We have so many things that go on in our minds that are going on in our minds at this very moment. Lord, help those to be put aside and help us to be able to focus attentively on what you tell us and help us to be willing to adjust our lives, to adjust our thoughts, which result in our lives, according to what we hear from you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Each week we have inserted in your program an outline for you to follow along as we look at God's word together. And so I encourage you to take that out if you haven't already. The first thing I want us to see together is that Christians live consistent lives. Christians live consistent lives. That first word in verse number eight is finally. And so that can sound as if it's the last thing that's going to be said. But as you look at chapter four, there are still several things to be said after this paragraph of verses eight and nine. But that word translated finally can also mean something like in summary. And that's what it means here. But what is it that's being summarized? Well, if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now, the word therefore in that first verse of chapter 4 connects it with what goes before in chapter 3. And the command in that first verse of chapter 4 to stand firm actually goes all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 27. So if you'll just flip back there for a moment, chapter 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and I see you or only hear about you in my absence, 
I will know that you, now notice this, stand firm. Same command given in chapter 4 and verse 1, that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So what's been said in chapter 4 so far is about that first verse in this chapter where it says to stand firm in the Lord. And you do that by being, chapter 4 tells us, united according to verses 2 and 3. You stand firm, we saw last week, by practicing joy in circumstances and deference in relationships and dependence on God in all things. And what comes between chapter 1 and verse 27, where we're told to stand firm, and the beginning of this final chapter is also about what it means to stand firm in the faith of the gospel. But chapter 1 and verse 27 says doing this, standing firm, means living a life worthy of the gospel. We read there, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So to live lives that are consistent means, as I say in your outline, it means, first of all, that we live lives that are worthy. We live lives that are worthy. And notice I have that in quotation marks because it's a quote from chapter 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that you will then stand firm. So I'm quoting there then from chapter 1 and verse 27, but as we'll see from other places in Scripture as well. That word translated worthy back in chapter 1, of which our passage is a summary. That word worthy is a translation of the Greek word axios. It's a term of measurement and it means to balance something out. What's on the other side of the scale should be in keeping with what's on the opposite. So given the gravity, given the weight, the importance of what Christ has done for us, here's what it's saying. We're called to live lives that are worthy, that is consistent with what we've been given by God's grace. So, for example, in the book of Ephesians, there are six chapters. The first three of those chapters tell us what has been done for us in the gospel. And the last three are about how we should live in light of that. Those last three chapters of Ephesians begin with chapter 4 and verse 1 this way. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I've told you what you've been given in chapters 1 through 3. Now live consistently in light of that. Live a life in balance that is consistent with what you've been given. Now this, friends, helps explain what is meant when we partake of the Lord's table what we call communion, as, by the way, we will do next week in the entirety of this hour together. And at that time, I'll remind you, as I always do, that the Bible warns against participating in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And that's from what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, that word unworthy is just the negated form of that same word that we have in Philippians 1.27 and Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. An unworthy manner. And then the next verse says, Everyone then ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And that's why we take time for silent prayer to confess to God any known sin before we participate in the Lord's table. What it's saying is that we should not participate if we're not living in a manner that's consistent with the gospel we profess to believe. 
Now, friends, it's not that I confess to the Lord and I seek forgiveness and then I'm now deserving. We could think of that word worthy that way. Okay, now I'm worthy. I was unworthy. I was undeserving. But now I ask forgiveness and now I'm now I'm deserving. Of course, we're never deserving of God's grace by its very definition. But rather, it is that I'm living a life that is consistent in balance, so to speak, with what I profess to believe. So Christians live consistent lives, that is, lives that are worthy in balance, in keeping with what we profess. And these consistent lives are driven by, as I say in your outline, they're driven by thoughts that are holy. We live consistent lives, lives that are worthy, driven by thoughts that are holy. Now, how can you summarize all that it means to live a consistent, worthy life in just two verses? Well, it's because, as we saw earlier, how we think determines everything else about us. And these two verses, verses 8 and 9, have two primary elements that comprise our entire lives. What we think, that's what we read earlier in verse 8, and then what we do. Verse 9 says, put it into practice. So if you think in a particular way, it will translate into what you do. If you think holy thoughts, it will lead to a holy life. But conversely, of course, if I'm thinking unholy thoughts, then it will lead to an unholy life. So this matter of our thoughts is of extreme importance. And so I say in your outline, this passage in verse 8 gives us examples of these kinds of thoughts, examples of such thoughts. Now, you notice I've left a little bit of space there because there are six of these given in verse 8. And I'm going to bounce through all six of those. And then you can scribble down whatever notes you choose to as we go through. But verse 8 gives six examples of the kinds of thoughts that we're to discipline ourselves to have. We'll go through them somewhat quickly and then we'll take time to make application of it to our lives. The first thing that verse... 8 says is, finally, my brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is true. This refers to truth in the broadest, most comprehensive sense. For Christians, this means that truth is something we value and we seek and that we speak in all of its forms and wherever truth is found. Truth is foundationally located in the Bible, in the word of God. And that's why Jesus said in his prayer the night before he was crucified, he said, sanctify them, that is my followers, sanctify them, set them apart. That's what sanctify means. It's related to the word holy to be set apart. So make them holy, but do so how? By your truth. And where is your truth? Your word is truth. So the more they read, the more they study, the more they understand, and the more they appropriate your truth, the more they will be unlike the world around them. The more they will be sanctified, the more they'll be different, the more that they will be holy. So we're called to be people of the word who read it and study it and meditate upon it. But we also engage God's creation. And we, because we're people of truth, reject irrational thinking and we speak the truth. We're called to cultivate minds that seek whatever is true in every avenue of life. 
from faith to science to relationships to public life to business. Now, practically, that means many things, including, friends, that we are not people who make declarative statements that are not backed up by objective facts. If you only focus your mind on what is true and what's known to be true, then you'll not end up like so many professing Christian people popping off on Facebook with every kind of unproven conspiracy theory about big pharma and what they're not telling you about what's not in your medicine or what is in your medicine, about big brother government and what they're doing to snoop on you, what the political candidate you don't like is doing, like running a satanic pedophile sex ring out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., Friends, I'm not making that up. That was said about Hillary Clinton and her family. And one man went and shot up in December, just December, went and shot up that pizzeria because he believed this was going on. If you have objective facts about a matter and a matter of real importance, fine. Please clue us all in. But otherwise, do not harm the name of Christ as someone who traffics in unproven claims and... Importantly, spends inordinate amounts of time chasing it down. Hear this. When there's plenty of real truth in your Bible that you could and should be spending your energies on putting into practice. Whatever is true. Whatever is noble, secondly. The Greek word here translated noble is used variously in Paul's letters, particularly the letters that he wrote to Timothy and Titus to teach that what those who are older and in leadership must be like, that they must be dignified, it's translated. So the word signifies a personal moral excellence that's dignified and worthy of honor. That's the meaning here. It's a noble life, an honorable life of spiritual gravitas that evokes honor. Now listen, I, I enjoy... Joking and and laughing. But those of us who understand why God has placed us here and the mission that he's given us to carry out, we understand that life is not a joke. And our life's call to display the character of God in our lives, that's what it means to glorify him, to display his character in our lives. And God's call to reach others with the gospel and build them up in the faith so that their lives glorify him. And God's call for us to see new churches planted that will do the same kind of thing. None of this is a laughing or frivolous matter. matter. This is serious and blessed business that God has called us to do. To think noble thoughts means we understand that what we do is serious business. And we conduct ourselves with a dignity that's appropriate to the seriousness of the task at hand. So whatever is true, whatever is noble, think that way. And third, whatever is right. Whatever is right or whatever is just, you could translate that, is defined by the character of God. Righteousness means to conform to a standard, and the character of God is that standard. And so our focus is to be in harmony with the eternal, unchanging, divine standard of the holy God who is revealed in Scripture. But just or right is also used in the sense of right thought or action. And this broad sense is what's in view here, but we only know what's right and just as we compare that to the character of God. 
So we're to contemplate the things that make for just living. That is doing the right thing. So holy thoughts are true thoughts and noble thoughts. Righteous, just thoughts. Fourth, whatever is pure. It's not limited to sexual purity, but it extends to all areas of moral purity in thought and in our speech and in our actions. We're to focus on that which is not tainted with evil. Speaks of being morally undefiled, morally clean. There are, these are thoughts that will not contaminate us, thoughts that will not move through us into actions that contaminate others. As we're going to see and document in just a bit, we live in a society engaged in exalting filth. It's very easy for God's people to become impure in such a world. So fifthly, whatever is lovely. The Greek word for lovely means something that's attractive or pleasant. It refers to those things that put themselves forward by their attractiveness. Lovely includes not only what's morally lovely, but what's aesthetically lovely. All that's beautiful in creation and in human lives. Anything from a sunset to a symphony to caring for the poor and the powerless. All things beautiful. And then sixthly, what is admirable. This refers to the kind of conduct that's spoken of highly by other people. Another translation renders this of good repute, whatever is of good repute. Now, whereas honorable, uh, or excuse me, noble that we saw earlier predominantly refers to something worthy of respect by believers, this term refers to what's reputable in the world at large by even unbelievers, things like kindness and courtesy and respect for others. So here's a list of six characteristics of thought that are worthy thoughts. Now, friends, this is how the Bible normally functions for us. I mean, you notice here, it doesn't tell you exactly what to think. It gives you categories of what to think. Because you're going to have to, and I'm going to have to, now go out and we're going to have to put that kind of thing into practice. And that's how the Bible normally functions for us. It does not detail all that you can and cannot do. Did you know that? Many people think of the Bible as just one big book of commandments. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. The truth is there are plenty of commandments, but most of the Bible is not that. It gives you guidance. It gives you examples. And then God holds you and me responsible for making godly choices. Now, the reason I point this out is, one, that's the way verse 8 is given to us, but also because I'm convinced many people misunderstand this and they misunderstand to their peril. They mistakenly believe that if something is not explicitly forbidden in the Bible then it's okay to do. Ah, man, do I know about that? I I used to be a youth leader. And teens are infamous for saying, well, where does it say I can't? And those teens grow into adults who say, and where does it say that I can't? But the Bible does not spell out everything you're supposed to do and not do. You will not find a chapter and verse that speaks directly to most of the decisions you have to make. It will give you principle. It will give you guidance. It will give you God's character to which you're to conform and then make decisions in keeping with that. If the question for you is always, well, what's wrong with it? If something wrong with it requires an explicit verse, then there's very little that you do that would be wrong because there are very few verses 
that command that directly and address your behavior in that way. Seminary president, uh, former seminary president Kevin Bowder at Central Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota, told a story of students in his seminary who he discovered were looking forward to the release of the annual Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. When he asked them why, they responded, where in the Bible does it say? As I've mentioned to you in the past, did you know that there's no verse in the Bible that says, do not snort cocaine? You just look in your concordance for cocaine, you won't find it. Now you say, no, wait a minute, the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, as it does. And yes, that is certainly a principle that has to be applied to that. But that's all it says. You have to apply it to things like cocaine and other things. And that the Bible speaks to us in principles and with examples that have to be in turn applied is seen, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, some of you will recognize those three verses are just before the famous Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And it gives you these nine fruits of the Spirit. But just before that, it tells you what the acts of the sinful nature are about in verses 19 to 21. And it says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And then it gives 15 examples. But notice examples. It doesn't say here are the only 15 things that you could ever do that are sinful and acts of the sinful nature. It lists 15 examples. And then at the very end, and it says this. And the like. And things like these. Those who don't recognize that the Bible functions in principles and examples often engage in what I call reverse legalism. Legalists are those who believe they get to heaven by what they do. And they can be very scrupulous about their lists of rules. They take the letter of the law and they flesh it out to regulate the most minute areas of behavior. The Pharisees, Jesus' primary opponents when he walked the earth, were experts at this. And the oral tradition they followed was later put into a document called the Mishnah. Here's an example of what the Mishnah says. Putting out a fire was illegal on the Sabbath, as was carrying things from one's home on the Sabbath. However, certain exceptions were made if one's house was burning down. One could carry food out of the house but only enough to get each member of the family through the rest of the Sabbath. One could not carry clothes out of the house, but one could wear as many clothes as one could get on. Putting the fire out was not allowed. But if a Gentile volunteered, a good Jew could allow the Gentile to put it out. One could not, however, ask a Gentile for such a favor. He has to volunteer. Now, we rightly laugh at that kind of legalism and letter of the law approach. Letterists take the letter of the law and they take it to ridiculous extremes. But reverse legalists say, if there is no letter of the law, then I'm good to go. And both have in common that they are bound by the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law and the examples of God's character given us in Scripture. 
Now, in addition to, then, these examples of worthy thoughts, we're given, in verse 8, a summary, I say in your outline, of such thoughts. Things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable can be summarized in the two words toward the end of verse 8, things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Now, notice how these two words are introduced, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy. The previous six were preceded by whatever is true, noble, right, and so on. These two summary qualities are conditional, if anything is, which means you have to look at it and you have to test it and you have to determine if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, so it requires us to exercise discernment. To make a choice about those things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Hebrews chapter 5 says this. The mature, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. They are people who look at it and they ask themselves, is there anything praiseworthy? Is there anything excellent here? Does it conform to the character of, of God? It's a call to discernment, to distinguish proper thoughts from improper. And how do I get it? Hebrews 5 says, by practice, by constant use. The last phrase of verse 8 is the first of the two commands in these two verses. It says, think about such things. Now, the word that's translated think is this Greek word, legitsomai. We get our word logic from it. It means, as you would work out like a mathematical term, like a logarithm, we get logarithm from it too, that you have to to think about it. You have to contemplate it. So you think about these things. Think about what is and has all these virtues and then decide what you're going to do and what you're going to invest your energies and your money and your time in. It's saying, I want you to consider these things. I want you to spend some time contemplating them. It requires that we engage in an ongoing process of meditating on worthy truths and thinking through how they logically fit together in the whole of life. It's what we call developing a worldview, a view of the world that is biblical. Think about such things. Friends, in the Christian community, too many of us gain bits and pieces of truth and we never start putting it together. So we become kind of Bible trivia buffs. But what we've got to learn, but we've all got to learn how to fit these concepts together, correlate truth with other truth, see the big picture. That's why at our church, we've taken time to develop a spiritual growth process that helps you get a handle on the Bible's message and then how that message and its various truths fit together. We don't just believe this doctrine and that doctrine, but we believe them because they all fit together. It's necessary for us to think about these things, consider them, put them together logically in our minds. Then and only then can we begin to see how truth applies to the whole of life. Now think about verse 8 and the inverse of of verse 8. If you negate everything that's said in verse 8. So what if it read like this? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is untrue, whatever is ignoble, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is not admirable, 
If there is anything not morally excellent, if there is anything unworthy of praise, do not think about these things. I mean, that's what it's telling us, isn't it? I mean, if these are the kinds of things positively that we're to focus on, then negatively, these are the kinds of things I'm to avoid. That I'm not to do. I'm not to focus my and train my attention upon. So the Bible's command here calls for a life of conscious negation. Thinking as we ought to demands the discipline of refusal to think about other kinds of things and focus our minds on those things. So, let's talk about that a bit. Let's talk about what it means for us, given the challenge that we face with the onslaught of unholy media available to us. A few years ago, the Chicago Tribune published an article titled, Media Options Swamp Nation. It said, the average American spends 9.6 hours a day inhaling media. Watching television, using computers, listening to the radio, going to the movies, and or reading. We as a nation apparently spend on average two months of every year just watching TV. And perhaps it's not crazy given that we have hundreds and hundreds of national cable channels to choose from and thousands of thousands of movies and flicks to download. And all of this media saturation has its effects. For instance, it has effects on consumer behavior. A brief candy cameo in the now old movie E.T. In E.T., the extraterrestrial, it, having that brief candy cameo immediately sent sales of Reese's Pieces into orbit. Sales increased 65% after the film's release. Back again, going back some years, with the debut of Charlie's Angels, karate lessons for young women increased 50% nationwide. There was a scene in Mission Impossible 2 of Tom Cruise's mountaintop experience involving instructions received via his sunglasses. It caused Oakley sunglass sales to soar to $100 million in the quarter following the movie's release. That was up 39% from the same quarter the previous year. It's not a bad return for them. They paid $100,000 to simply have the brand name on those sunglasses in that movie. One restaurant in Greenwich Village was deluged with customers who came in, quote, looking for whatever it was Sarah Jessica Parker was eating on a segment of a show of the last decade, Sex in the City. Now, do you think that if TV and movies can impact buying habits, friends, that they can influence other things as well? One actor said, and I'm going to quote a number of actors and directors here. One actor said, I remember being affected by the sex scene in An Officer and a Gentleman. I was 10 years old when I saw it. And I still remember the guy who let me into the movie. Another actor said, I got to see the impact that our show has on young people, which can be scary. One of the most terrifying things I've had happen was meeting a seven-year-old girl in a grocery store who said, I thought it was so funny when your roommate danced naked. Until you experience that, he says, you don't really understand the impact that television has on kids. Director Oliver Stone said, film is a powerful medium. Film is a drug. Film is a potential hallucinogen. 
It goes into your eye, it goes into your brain, it stimulates, and it's a dangerous thing. It can be a very subversive thing. Actor Tom Cruise said, I don't like my kids to watch that much television. (laughs) I just put it out there, but we don't watch it. We're focusing on reading, a lot of reading. They're allowed about three and a half hours of television a week. I can actually see the difference when they watch too much television in terms of their education, their attention span, their behavior. Filmmaker Spike Lee said, the most powerful nations are not those who have bombs, but those who control the media. That's where the battle is being fought. That is how you control people's minds. Yet another actor from the Austin Powers movie said, certain kids are too young to see these. A four-year-old came up to me once and told, and her dad, uh, with her dad, uh, and her dad told her, honey, do what mini-me does in the movie. And she flipped me off. That's just not right, the actor said. Actress and director Jodie Foster said, movie uh, characters' ideals become our ideals. Their thoughts become standards of our thinking and language. Their style of dress and movement are seen on the streets of our nation. And their moments of triumph and defeat become our successes and our failures. Almost done. A Hollywood screenwriter says, a cigarette in the hands of a Hollywood star on screen is a gun aimed at a 12 or 14-year-old. The gun will go off when the kid is an adult. We in Hollywood know the gun will go off, and yet we hide behind a smokescreen of phrases like creative freedom and artistic expression. The late Ted Turner, who founded CNN and TNT, said, You know that everything we're exposed to influences us. Those violent films influence us, and the TV programs we see influence us. The weaker your family is, the more they influence you. The problems with families in our cities are catastrophic. But when you put violent programs before people who haven't had a lot of love in their lives, who are angry anyway, it's like pouring gasoline on the fire. Actress Jamie Lee Curtis of Halloween Infamy. What planet are you on when you think that a horror movie is all right for a child? A new study conducted by the National Institute on Media and the Family concludes that watching lots of violence on television and playing violent video games not only makes kids more physically aggressive, but it also makes them meaner and more distrustful. Some of you have said, I don't think it really affects me. I don't think it really affects us. Let me ask you something. Do bad books And bad literature, or let me ask it the other way. Do good books and good literature affect you for good? Then what makes you think bad books and bad literature and bad media don't affect you for ill? Christians are called to live consistent lives. Lives that are worthy. That emanate from thoughts that are holy. And then I say in your outline. We perform actions that are appropriate. Actions that are appropriate. That is, appropriate in keeping with what we think. Actions that flow from these holy minds and these holy thoughts. And so verse 9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Now the first pair of those, learned and received, describes the direct instruction that the Philippians had received from Paul when he was with them, when he found, from the very beginning when he founded that church. And he taught them Christian doctrine and Christian living. Then you got this second pair, 
of what they had heard and what they had seen. That depicts their personal observation of his speech and his conduct. So there's what he instructed them with, and then there's his example before them. So with all of this, what are the kinds of actions that you're going to put into place if you're called to live a consistent life that is worthy and has holy thoughts and then appropriate actions that are consistent with those holy thoughts? Let me make a recommendation to you, friends, from the book of Psalms. Psalm 101. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. I will set before my eyes, and you could then add, and I will put into my ears no vile thing. Those things that fit the criteria of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, I will focus upon them. That means dads in this room, that means for your sake, for your wife's sake, and for your children's sake, you change some things at your home about what's allowed in and the poison that you're allowing in now. That you change some things about your children getting alone and having stuff in their room and unfiltered access to whatever they want to look at. That you step in and you take charge for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your family. Christians live consistent lives. And then lastly in your outline, they live confident lives. Confident lives. Why? Because the end of verse 9 says, and then when you do this, when you think this way, when you act this way, the the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Now, you may remember last week back in verse 7, it said, if we are joyful in our circumstances, practice joy in our circumstances, deference in our relationships, dependence in in our situations, dependence on God. If we do that, verse 7 says, and then, if you do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will be yours. And it will guard your hearts and your minds. Well, now this says, in verse 9, not the peace of God, but the God of peace. (laughs) And the God of peace will be with you. That is another way of saying that God will be pleased with what you are doing. And that the God who has given you these instructions and is pleased by your obedience in them will be with you as you continue to strive and grow in this, walk, in this particular direction of your walk with Him. So what is our take-home truth? It is that God is with us as we think and then act In ways that are worthy of him. God is with us. And so we have confidence. Why? Because this is what pleases God. And this is the direction God wants us to go in. And he gives his promise. I will be with you in it. Let's bow before the Lord as we do. Let us perhaps confess to the Lord. That we have not given sufficient thought to our thoughts. And then ask the Lord to help us implement these kinds of things in our homes and in our lives this coming week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you as each week for instructing us from your word about how it is that you require and desire your people to live. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have not just told us to do this and then left us without the resources to carry it out. You've given us your word. You've given us ample examples of your people and how they've done that in the great apostle and in others. And then you've given us your Holy Spirit in order to empower us to carry out what you have said. And you brought us together as your church, as your people, to lean on one another, to learn from one another, to help one another in the struggle for a pure life. Thank you, Lord, for telling us how you made us, and that you made us with the ability to think and this powerful organ that you gave us, that you call the mind, then dictates everything else that happens in our lives. So, Lord, thank you for telling us what the root of these issues is. It's not just changing our behavior, but we have to change at the root our thoughts. And so, Lord, I pray that today, this morning, your people are turning their thoughts to you, turning their hearts to you, returning their hearts and minds and thoughts to you. And as a result of that, Lord, may that translate then into our actions and we may display your character to an onlooking world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.